Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We were able to identify Fire Island Jane Doe as Karen Vergata who was 34 years old. For 27 years, Karen Vergata was known as Jane Doe number seven or Fire Island Jane Doe. We talk with one of the scientists who helped identify her once and for all. Welcome to Sidebar here on Law and Crime. I'm Anjanette Levy. No one knew Karen Vergata's name, only that part of her skull had been found on Gilgo Beach her legs found on Fire Island years prior. But recently, officials in Suffolk County on Long Island sent DNA from the remains to Othram Labs in Texas. Othram works with law enforcement officials to identify remains and help solve cold cases. Othram used genetic genealogy to identify Karen Vergata. Suffolk County officials haven't said whether they believe Vergata's murder is connected to the Gilgo Four. Rex Huerman is a 55-year-old architect from Massapequa Park. He faces charges in the murders of three of the Gilgo Four. He's pleaded not guilty to the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Amber Costello, and Megan Waterman. The DA says he is the prime suspect in the murders of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Huerman insists through his attorney that he didn't do this and that he's innocent. Joining me to discuss the technology used to identify Karen Vergata, the Fire Island Jane Doe, is Kristen Middleman. She's the Chief Development Officer with Othram Labs. Othram helped identify the Fire Island Jane Doe and has worked on other cases across the country. Uh, we've featured them in other cases before as well. Kristen, uh, thanks for coming on to Sidebar. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. I want to start at the beginning with this because this testing is different from your typical DNA testing. Of course, you have to have a DNA profile to do what you do, uh, but you guys use a different type of profile to do the investigative genetic genealogy. It's called a SNP, if I am saying that right. So tell us how you really start at the beginning and go about building these family trees and everything like that off of a DNA profile, uh, an STR profile that you later, I guess, I don't know, to develop another type of profile for. Absolutely. So um, standard forensic testing that's been used for 30 years, DNA testing that has gone to court all this time, is known as STR testing. There you're looking at 20 STR markers and you're comparing them to the known database of perpetrators that, that is owned by the FBI, CODIS. So sometimes you guys may have heard that as CODIS testing. If someone is in the known perpetrator database, then you have a direct hit. But your DNA would have to be in there or maybe the DNA of your child, like a direct familiar relationship. What we do is we build profiles that have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of markers, up to a million markers. So these profiles have all of these SNP markers that you just discussed. And when you upload those to genealogical databases consented for law enforcement use, you're able to get really distant relationships. The more markers you have, the more distant relationships you can actually um, reach. And so you can get a sixth cousin, a fifth cousin, 
a fourth cousin, and all of us are related to some degree. Most, most areas in the United States, they were founded from a few key families. And so to some degree, there'll be some relative in there. And they're not the relatives that come home for Thanksgiving with you, not the relatives that you know or you would call, but there would be some match in these databases. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Then our um, genealogists go in, our genealogy team, just like you said, and they look at these matches and they figure out who the most recent common ancestor is on a tree. And then they build the tree back down until the puzzle piece that the person that we're trying to identify fits right into a family tree. At that point, we return that lead back to investigators and they contextualize it within their investigation. So let's talk about Karen Vergata because we know that part of her remains, um, so gruesome and grisly, it's sad, uh, her legs and feet were located in one area in a plastic bag on Fire Island, but then her her skull was located um, much later than that. So you may have had a better DNA sample to work with from the remains, from the legs, uh, but maybe not the skull so much. So uh, tell us where you began with that. Obviously, you you took her DNA and, and did your work. Yes, we took the remains and we we extracted DNA and then we proceeded to do forensic grade genome sequencing. That's this technique where we do a feasibility analysis before we consume the DNA because sometimes when you're dealing with perpetrator cases, you only have a finite amount of DNA in the tube. And if you consume it, all DNA testing, all DNA sequencing is a destructive process. You're actually consuming someone's last chance of getting justice. And so we do this feasibility analysis that allows us to in advance predict whether or not we can build one of these profiles with the properties of the DNA found in that sample. Because we've identified um, and returned leads on over a thousand cases, and because we've done it all in-house, this has become a truth set. Each case becomes a standard. So we compared the DNA from her case to the previous DNA samples that we have run here at Authorum that we know we can successfully build a profile from and, and proceeded once we knew that yes, we could build one of these profiles. Then we did the sequencing, built a profile that had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of markers, and that was uploaded to genealogical databases consented for law enforcement use. And in this case, we worked with the New York office from the FBI, and they actually did the genealogical research 
to put her back on a family tree. Called the family and asked if there's someone missing. That's what that's what happens each time. And um, her father did say that she was missing. They were looking for her. And uh, the last time he had spoken to her was Valentine's Day, 1996. So I assume then you requested or the FBI requested a standard, a, a sample from her father. That's right. And then there's a confirmation test that confirms our um, hypothesis that it was her. And so that's what happens each time, whether it's, um, and, and if, if a direct relationship isn't available, we can do a kinsnip confirmation, which allows you to use a further out relative. But in this case, her father was still alive. In fact, he passed away a few months after finding out what happened to his daughter. Oh my goodness. So did he feel some sense of peace or can you, are you able to describe to us or for us how he felt or his reaction upon learning once and for all where his daughter was located? Yeah. So what has been reported is that he had been looking for her continuously. It was his only child and he um, had hired a private investigator to find her through the years. And maybe he was holding on because after he found out what had happened to her, he was able to to pass away, at least knowing the truth. Met hundreds of families over the last few years doing this job that are missing someone. And I have to say their life stops at the moment when their loved one is gone or at the moment where they don't know what happened to their loved one or who is responsible. I've met families that live in the same home for 47, 50 years, hoping someone will come back and knock on the door or someone will know where their loved one is. Families that go back to their favorite place weekly trying to see if maybe they would run into them. Families that go back to the crime scene hoping they run into the perpetrator. They, they hire investigators. They get online every day looking for their loved one. And they can't move forward until they know the truth. As far as Karen goes, did you do any work to see least on her legs or had anybody else done any work on her legs to see if there was other DNA, maybe a swab to see if a perpetrator's DNA could have been on her body parts? I'm sure. Um, So um, every time unidentified remains are are found, um, and this was, this is a case, I'm sure that there was work done to see what other DNA was found there as well. But until until any of that is announced, until that becomes relevant to an investigation and announced by law enforcement. Again, these remains were found decades ago. Othram didn't exist until 2018. Her remains were obviously preserved enough. The legs were preserved enough to extract the DNA profile. Was it particularly difficult to, to work with those remains because of the age of them, even though they seemed like they were found relatively quickly? In April, she vanishes on February 14th. Was that difficult? There was contamination that was involved in this case that made it difficult to sequence the correct DNA profile in order to be able to to get her identity. But the age of the remains, like I said, we've worked cases that are over 100 years old. So that wasn't the, the biggest issue here. It was contamination from the surroundings that made this case a little bit more difficult to work with. But it's something that We've done time and time again here at Othram, and and what what used to be impossible is now the is no longer the exception; it's the rule. 
it's something that's easy and it works as you go through this process relatively quickly because because of those standards that have been built. And so that brings me hope that everyone that's out there nameless right now, every victim that's out there that has DNA, they should have their name back. I think within the next few years, we're going to live in a world where no one goes nameless for decades. No father, no parent is waiting to find out where their loved one is. No one's wondering if their loved one just ran away and doesn't want to be part of their life anymore. If something happened to them, that's that shouldn't happen anymore. This this new type of sequencing, it is being used now in contemporary investigations right after standard DNA sequencing doesn't give you that identity. And with victims, it almost never does because they're not in the known perpetrator database. So you are not getting that answer. It can easily be flipped to forensic grade genome sequencing and you can infer someone's identity and not have a cold case. Be able to identify that person and give them their name back right away and start the investigation as to what happened to them much sooner, which often leads to being able to get more clues and, and solve the case faster. I just wanted to go back to Karen just briefly. You said that her father had disclosed that the last time he was talk he had spoken with her was on Valentine's Day. Did he ever recall that that you're aware of whether or not like what that conversation entailed? I mean, was he aware that she was engaged in this type of work and in, in being an escort? He did. Um in the interview that I read, um he he said that she had called him from jail and she was very distressed on that last phone call. And so he knew she she was in trouble and had been trying to piece what happened to her afterwards. And he said that she kept in touch. They had a close relationship and she contacted him frequently. So when she stopped contacting him, that was something that um, was unusual and he didn't feel was something that was because she didn't want to contact him. Well, Kristen, it's been wonderful talking with you. I've loved this and I hope you'll come back sometime so we can talk more about one of your other cases. So thank you so much for joining Absolutely. us to talk to us about uh, Fire Island Jane Doe. Thank you for having me. And anytime you have DNA questions, call us back. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Law & Crime Sidebar Podcast. You can listen to and download Sidebar on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always watch it on Law & Crime's YouTube channel. I'm Anjanette Levy, and we'll see you next time.